Jonathan Edwards, who was born in 1703, was known as the, one of the great American Puritan preachers who lived in the 1700s. You know, he was known as um, a great preacher. He was not only great, but he was also known as one of, he was also one of the most respected preachers that America has produced. He attended Yale at that time when it used to be one that was a training center to nurture young minds. He entered Yale at the age of 13. He later went on to become the president of Princeton College. In 1727, he married his wife, Sarah, and they were blessed with 11 children. That's six more than the average here. Uh, in, in 1900, an American educator by the name A.E. Winship decided to trace the descendants of Jonathan Edwards. Um, almost 150 years after his death. And his findings were remarkable, to say the least. Here are some things that he found uh, of Jonathan's legacy. And Jonathan Edwards' legacy includes, he said, one U.S. vice president, one dean of a law school, one dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, uh, three governors, uh, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, and 285 college graduates. It's an incredible legacy to leave behind. It began with one man, Jonathan Edwards. Now what grabs my attention, and should yours as well, is the number actually that's not mentioned here. It's the number of men and women who have been spiritually impacted by the ministry of Jonathan Edwards. In fact, a sermon that he preached on July 8, 1741 by the title Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God actually became the catalyst for the first great awakening. Now, his spiritual impact was felt by others but was most closely felt by and experienced by his 11 children and then others outside of his immediate family. Every night, it is told, when Mr. Edwards was home, he would spend an hour conversing with his family and then praying a blessing over each child. Jonathan and Sarah passed on a great godly legacy to their 11 children. Now, by no means he is a perfect man, which would be true of each one of us, except the Lord Jesus Christ, but a life of legacy and the life that he lived was something that was worth thinking and reflecting on. Now, if you were to ask Jonathan Edwards if he was here, did you imagine that this is the kind of impact you would have? Did you, all, did you plan this all? Based on his life's and his writings and his resolutions, he would say this, which is one of his resolutions. He would say, resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to, the, to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so, many myriads of ages hence. In other words, I single-mindedly and resolutely focused on the glory of God. I determined to be faithful in the daily decisions of life. Legacy, or impact, or influence. Every now and then we come across a text that, that makes us stop and take a stock of our life 
and the legacy that each one of us will leave behind. It makes us think deeply about the impact that one life, yes, one life can have, and it forces us to ask the question, what kind of legacy would you and I like to leave behind? 100, 200 years from now, if you and I are remembered, what would you like to be remembered as? Now we come to a text today that draws the curtain on the life of one of the most influential figures in the Bible and in world history. In fact, Abraham is his name, and his name is synonymous with the word faith. It was about him that was, it was first said, the just shall live by faith. Yet, just like Jonathan Edwards, Abraham would be the last person to point his finger to himself, but his finger would be pointed to the one who created him and then sovereignly chose him and then providentially provided for him. He would say, I am just an unworthy slave. I have done only that which I ought to have done. We come to the life of Abraham. Now, as I mentioned in my email yesterday, we're going to look at his death. But we're not mourning. We're not grieving. We're celebrating a life that was well lived. If I had to summarize our lesson, if I had to title our lesson for tonight, it would be Generations of Grace. Generations of Grace. And then as I look at summarizing the lesson for us, it would be this way. The legacy of a faithful and godly life reflects the blessings of God. The legacy of a faithful and godly life reflects the blessings of God. And our text for tonight is Genesis chapter 25, verse 1 to verse 18. Let's begin looking, looking firstly at the generations of Abraham as we consider verse 1 to verse 3, and then verse 12 to verse 18. Verse 1. Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore to him Zimran and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashurim and Letushim and Lumim. Generations of Abraham. Sometime after Sarah's death and Isaac's marriage to Rebekah, we are told that Abraham took a wife for himself, took another wife. That is, he got or acquired or married another woman. And her name, we are told in verse 1, was Keturah. Uh, Keturah means fragrance or incense, someone or something that smells good. You know, she's listed here as Abraham's wife, but if you were to look at First Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32, there, she is referred to as Abraham's concubine. Now, we generally tend to think of Hagar as Abraham's concubine. But if you look at Genesis chapter 16, verse 3, there, Hagar is listed as Abraham's wife. And so you ask yourself, what exactly is their relationship with Abraham? So which one is it? Now, Sarah was his wife is abundantly clear as you look at the 12 chapters before chapter 25. What exactly were Hagar and Keturah to be to Abraham? Well, it can be deduced from how he treated that the children that were born to them. Now, we already know that he sent Ishmael away 
And then if you look at verse 6, it tells us that he sent Keturah's children away as well. And in doing that, he treats Keturah's children as, uh, Keturah is really as concubine. And this also explains why Keturah and Hagar are thought of as concubines in verse 6. Uh, the question then is, why are they listed as wives in other places? Now, this is not in the text, but based on the culture that existed at that time, a wife quite obviously had a higher status in the culture. And in listing them as such, it may be that when they moved away and lived on their own, they lived with some semblance of dignity and honor in the culture. And so Abraham's intentions may have been good to send them away so that they could live in honor and dignity. And that brings us to the children that were born to Keturah. Uh, we have a, here a list of children, all of them sons. Uh, some of the sons have their children listed while others are not. There are a total of six sons, verse 2, uh, Zimran, Zokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And then you have Jokshan's sons mentioned, uh, who are Sheba and Didan. Then Didan's sons are mentioned, Ashurim, Letishim, and Lumim. Midian's sons are also mentioned, and they were Epha, Ephir, Hanok, Abida, and Elda. Now, we don't know everything about everyone listed here, but there are some names that are listed here that do play a part in the Old Testament narratives later on. Uh, for example, we know that Moses, when he fled from Egypt after murdering uh, uh, an Egyptian, he actually fled to Midian. Uh, that story is told in Exodus chapter 2. And he settles in the land of Midian and gets married to one of the seven daughters of the priest of Midian. Uh, another one is from the book of Job. Uh, we meet one of the descendants of Shua in the book of Job. When Job's friends, remember, they heard of the adversity that had come upon Job and his family. Uh, there are three friends to, who, who come to meet and to comfort him. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Zophar, the Namathite, and Bildad, the Shuite. Uh, they come to sympathize with him and comfort him. And so here you have uh, the Shuites that are mentioned. So why then are these names listed here? What is their purpose? Well, a number of things we could think of at this time. They're listed to show the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. What was that? Genesis 17, you don't have to turn there. But in Genesis 17, it says, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you will, that is Abraham, you will be a father of multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, that is A-B-R-A-M, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I've made you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Three times it's repeated that nations will come from you, Abraham. And that is the fulfillment that we find in Genesis chapter 25. Not only that, they're also listed to show God's blessings of posterity in the life of Abraham. Here is a man who did not have any children until the age of 86. The next one he had was Isaac at the age of 100. And now another six sons are mentioned, so eight sons in total. And so God has abundantly blessed Abraham. But these names also are listed to give a brief history of where some of Israel's neighbors came from. Apparently, when the first generation of Hebrews or Jewish people came from Egypt or moved out of Egypt in the book of Exodus, uh, 
uh, to the promised land, they were familiar with these descendants, and so Moses lists them here. Not only that, these names are also listed to differentiate the promised son, that is Isaac, from the rest of the descendants of Abraham. How do we know that? Notice at the end of verse 4. All these, it says, were the sons of Keturah. They are not listed as the sons of Abraham, but they are listed as the sons of Keturah. That is, separating Isaac, who is the promised seed, from the rest of the sons of Abraham. Now, ideally, we should move to, uh, move to verse 4 onwards, uh, or rather, verse 5 onwards. But we are going to pick up in verse 12 as we consider Ishmael's descendants. And though we are shown the descendants of Abraham first, now we are seeing the descendants of Abraham through Ishmael. Notice verse 12. Now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael and Kedar, Abdil and Mipsam, and Mishma and Duma and Masa, Hadad and Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps. Twelve princes according to their tribes. And that short phrase, records of the generations in verse 12, should remind us of something. Uh, records in the NASB should be in italics. Uh, that is to indicate that that word doesn't come in the original text. But the word generations is the word toledoth. Toledoth, I... Uh, I'm not sure if you remember that, but we talked about it when we were in chapter 2. Uh, we have this word actually mentioned in Genesis 13 times, and 11 of those 13 times, it indicates either a heading or a conclusion to a certain section. Uh, first mentioned in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, it is mentioned there to indicate the account of the heavens and the earth, which is the account of creation. And then the second heading comes to us in chapter 5 verse 1, where we are told this is the book of the generations of Adam. And so this is one of the ways in which you can divide the book as you study this book, uh, Toledots. We are now given an account, a record of Ishmael, the firstborn of Abraham. Who is he? Well, he is his son, but he's not the son of the promise. Uh, that is why we are given some more additional information in verse 12. Notice, he is the one whom Hagar, the Egyptian, and then if that was not enough, we are told she was Sarah's maid who bore to Abraham. Then we are introduced to his sons that were born to him. Again, with his sons too, we don't have a lot of information, but there are some of his sons that we do know about. So for example, the first one, Nebaioth, Esau married Nebaioth's sister, that's mentioned in chapter 28 and verse th uh, chapter 36, and then Kedar, uh, both Kedar and Nebaioth were Arab tribes. And then we have the other sons that are mentioned. The only one that stands out there is the son by the name Jetur. And many historians say that they could be the um, um, ancestors of the Iturians that are mentioned in Luke chapter 3 verse 1. Then we come down to verse 16. Notice verse 16. And the way it is phrased, these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps, 12 princes according to their tribes. And that indicates that Ishmaelites were also nomadic uh, in nature and 
it alludes to their wandering lifestyle. Also observe that there are 12 of them mentioned. At the end of verse 16, we are told there are 12 princes. And that itself is also a fulfillment of a previous chapter and a verse in God's promise. If you're still in chapter 17, go down to verse 20. Notice what it says. Genesis chapter 17, verse 20. This is God speaking with Abraham. And he says, as for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. So the account here is actually a fulfillment of the promise that the Lord had made to Abraham. And we have all, all of our journey so far in Genesis has been an affirmation of the fact that this is a promise-keeping God. And then finally, in verse 17, we are informed of Ishmael's death. Notice, these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria. He settled in defiance of all his relatives. Ishmael lived for 137 years. That is a long life. And he breathed, he breathed and he, uh, his last and, and died at the age of 137. And then it says he, he was gathered to his people. Some commentators think that because the last phrase, gathered to his people, it indicates that Ishmael may very well have become a believer in the true God. Because who were his people? Well, he was a son of Abraham. Abraham was his father. While others say, no, it's not possible because of what is mentioned in verse 18, which is that his people settled in Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, and they settled in defiance of all his relatives. And so some other commentators say that he was not a believer for sure because he would not live defiantly. All we can say at this stage is, with certainty, is one day we will know for sure. What can we know about God from these two passages as I conclude this particular section? Well, first of all, we clearly see divine providence. You know, the two accounts of Keturah and Hagar's sons highlights God's providential care and guidance over the lineage of Abraham. God ensures the fulfillment of his promises despite various challenges and different circumstances. His promise, for example, to Abraham about many nations coming through him is already being fulfilled on a small scale. Uh, suddenly, if you think of Abraham, the name, what does the name mean? It means the father of many nations. Suddenly, that name begins to make a lot more sense. You see, Abraham, on his part, trusted the Lord for fulfilling his promise, and we see a fruit of that in the passages that we have just looked at. His promise to Abraham specifically about Ishmael and his 12 princes have also come to pass. That leads us to the second thing which we can know about God, and that is divine election. Not only do we see divine providence, but we also see the seeds of divine election in this passage. And now this will be more strongly played out in the next passage, which is from verse 19 to verse 34. But we see the seeds of that in this passage. You see, both Ishmael and the six sons of Keturah are not the sons of promise. 
But Isaac was, and that too before he was born. We will learn more in our next lesson, but for here and now, it's helpful to be reminded that if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you, have, if you have repented and placed your trust and faith in Christ, and you are a believer, then you are among the elect. God deeply cares for each one of you. And in Psalm 139, verse 13 to 16, it says, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, O Lord, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. And then it says this, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not even one of them. What does that tell me? It tells me about a God who knows everything. Tell me, tells me about a God who deeply cares for you and for me. First of all, then, the generations of Abraham. Secondly, we come to the gifts of Abraham, verse 5 and verse 6. Verse 5 and verse 6. Now, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. Now, everything that Abraham had, it says here, he passed it on to Isaac. After all, he was the son of promise, and it did not go to Ishmael, even though he was the firstborn. In fact, he was an illegitimate child, as the text later on will explain, and so were the six that were born to Keturah. But that was not true of Isaac. Isaac was the son, the one son through whom the promises of God and the covenant of God would be, uh, would be fulfilled. And so that's one thing that we see here, that Isaac is the promised son. But secondly, to the sons of his concubines, just like he did with Ishmael and Hagar when he sent them, he gave them, he gave them bread and water, remember? He gives his son's gifts, it says here, while he was still living, verse 6. He not only gives them gifts, but he also sends them away from his son, Isaac, eastward to the land of the east. Now you might ask, why, why does he do this? Why does he perform these two actions? Well, he sends them away so that there would be space for Isaac, the son of the promise, to grow and expand numerically in the promised land, the land that God has promised to Abraham and his descendants. And Isaac was the one through whom Abraham's descendants would be named. So that was one reason. But also by sending him away, he reduces the possibility of a conflict between them and Isaac. And thereby he ensures relatively less amount of uh, conflict and relatively more amount of peace for Isaac. You would say, what a wise man Abraham was. He not only sends them away, he gives them gifts. Abraham, as their father, takes full responsibility to provide for them, even as he sends them away. And in giving them gifts, he acts as a godly believer. Now, there's something to be said about a man who leaves an inheritance for his children. There's something to be said about a man who takes good care of his family, works hard. And there's beauty and truth and goodness in, in that. The scriptures teach us that we are to provide for our family. 
In 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, Paul writes to Timothy, but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. But as you think about that, this is beyond providing for your family when you're alive. Notice what it says in verse 6 about Abraham. Abraham also leaves an inheritance and by leaving an inheritance, he's caring for and providing for them even after he has died. And that Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 13 verse 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Abraham displays the goodness of his heart. He was a godly man. He was a good believer. The gifts from Abraham. That brings us thirdly to the gathering of Abraham, verse 7 to verse 11. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. And then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived by Beer Lahai Roy. Now we've been studying the life of Abraham. We've been involved in his life for a little over 14 months now. And we, and we come today to the end of his earthly life. The text tells us that he lived for 175 years. That is, he died at the age of 175. That is, 100 years after God called him. This was 89 years after Ishmael was born, which means Ishmael was 89 when, I, when Abraham died. And this was 75 years after Isaac was born. This was 38 years after Sarah's death. And in fact, this catches many by surprise, this was 15 years after the birth of Esau and Jacob. And so he saw his sons, and he saw his grandsons. 175 years. That's a long life. Uh, these are the number of years, and they point to the quantity of his life. But not only are we told about the number of years Abraham lived, we're also told about the quality of his life. We are told that he died in a ripe old age, which can also be translated as good old age. In fact, that too is God's promise coming to fulfillment. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 15, God tells Abraham, as for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you will be buried at a good old age. That's a, another promise coming to fulfillment. He died as an old man, satisfied with life, it says. Now, it's one thing to live a long life. It's another to live a long and a satisfied life. As someone has said, this obituary notice about Abraham draws attention to the fact that Abraham died not only at an elderly age, but in a frame of mind filled with inner shalom and satisfaction. All his wants and all his expectations have been satisfied. He was a content man. He was a man who was content with life. 
As we reflect on this great patriarch's life, we wonder what, what is it that made it a life full of satisfaction and contentment? You know, we can be impressed with Abraham's obedience. We, just a few chapters back, we saw that in Genesis 22. And we can sense his uh, sense of adventurousness of, about his life. He moved from one location to another. You know, we can be impressed with his treatment of Sarah and his treatment of his sons right in this chapter. But I think what you and I should come away most impressed with is the part that God played in his, in his journey. It was God, you see, who initiated the relationship. Uh, it was God who called him. It was God who chose him. It was God who helped and worked patiently in and through him. It was God who revealed himself to Abraham as he moved from one place to another. It was God's story all the way. In fact, we can go a step further and say, Abraham's satisfaction was not in the life he lived, but in the God whom he served. His life, his satisfaction was not in the life he lived, but in the God whom he served. He lived for the audience of one, and that one was God. You and I only will be satisfied with life when we are satisfied in the one who gave us that life. And when you're satisfied in him, you will not seek satisfaction in anything or anyone else. That's an example that we find in Abraham. He was satisfied in the God he served. And then it says he, would, he was gathered to his people. Another way of saying he, he died. But what does gathered to his people mean? Uh, the new... Um, uh, the, the, uh, NLT translates this phrase, he joined his ancestors in his death. He joined them. But the question is, who were his ancestors? Who were his people? But certainly they were not the ones he left behind in Ur of the Chaldeans or in Haran where some of his family members were. No, his people were Adam and Eve and Abel and Seth and Enoch and Noah and, and Sarah. Men and women who walked with God who were believers in God. And these were the ones he was gathered to. Notice what the text does not say. It does not say that Abraham ceased to exist. Or Abraham came in some other form. No, it says he died and he was gathered. Which is to say his body and soul were separated at death. Body returned to the dust that it came from and his soul or spirit returned to God. In fact, Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, writes about death. He says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. That's what happens to believers at death. Another thing that you want to observe in this text is that the soul retains its individuality after death. He was gathered to his people. How does he know, or how does he know they are his people? Because they have retained their identity or individuality. You know, Adam is still Adam. Abraham is still Abraham. And you is still you. Which is bad grammar, but good theology. You're going to have your own identity, which is unique to you. We are going to be recognizable. That's why it says here, we're gathered 
He's gathered to his people. Then we are told what his sons did. Notice Isaac and Ishmael come together to bury him in the cave of Machpelah. Abraham's death then brings together two individuals who, are, who were estranged from each other. Really, his death gives them a purpose to come together. And they display that they loved his, their father. They give him an honorable burial. The location of his grave is mentioned. It was the cave of Machpelah. And then we are told about the lawful possession of that location. It was the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, uh, face, and, and it was facing Mamre. That was the same field that Abraham bought from the sons of Heth. And finally, we are told uh, the liaison in death as we see Sarah and Abraham together in death. No longer as husband and wife, but as a son and a daughter of the Most High God. That section then ends in verse 11, providing us an update on Isaac. We are told that after Abraham died, God blessed his son Isaac, and that Isaac lived by Bir Lahai Roy. Two quick observations about verse 11. First of all, as Abraham moves out of the picture, we now see the same God continuing his blessings on a descendant of Abraham. He blesses his son Isaac. In other words, the baton has passed from Abraham to Isaac. Secondly, notice where Isaac is residing. It is Bir Lahai Roy. And what is significant about this place? Uh, this was the place, remember, when Hagar fled from Sarah. She came to this place. It was here in chapter 16 that God tells Hagar uh, that she will have a son and she will call his name Ishmael. It was here that she worships the Lord and she's astonished that she has remained alive even after seeing God. And she says to God, you are a God who sees. That is what Bir Lahai Roy means. The God who sees. You know, we talked about the fact that the baton was passed from Abraham to Isaac. And clearly the place of significance for Ishmael, because this is where she was told that Ishmael will be born to her. Uh, this is a significant place for Ishmael. Uh, that also has been taken from him and now given to Isaac. That's the first time the location is mentioned. But the second time the location is mentioned is when Isaac, who was living in the Negev, goes to Bir Lahai Roy to meditate. We told about that in chapter 24, verse 62. Uh, this is a place then of meditation, a place of prayer. So this is a special place. Isaac is blessed, and he is blessed by the Lord himself, and he lives by Bir Lahai Roy, a significant location. Now, how is Isaac blessed exactly? Well, we will find that out in our next lesson. So in a way, this verse acts as an introduction. Uh, it gives us a hint of what is coming up in the life of Isaac next. And we have seen then the generations of Abraham, We've seen the gifts from Abraham. We considered the gathering of Abraham. As we come to this last section of Abraham's life, it's fitting to conclude by reflecting on the grace of God in and through Abraham's life. What can we say about Abraham as we conclude studying his life tonight? How can we see God's grace on display in Abraham's life? That brings us to the fourth and final section, really. The grace of God in and through Abraham. The grace of God in and through Abraham. 
there are four chapters that, 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 that give significant amount of space to Abraham in the New Testament. And I want to just pick up quickly on each one of them and, and share a little bit about how the grace of God is seen in and through Abraham. First of all, we see that Abraham was an example of faith. Abraham was an example of faith. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. If you're looking for an explanation of Genesis chapter 15 verse 6, Romans chapter 4 is Paul's exposition of that particular verse. It's filled with references to Abraham. In fact, Abraham is the second most known Old Testament figure or quoted figure in the New Testament. Only Moses is quoted more number of times than Abraham. Abraham is quoted some 70 times, while Moses some 80 times. In this chapter, we see Abraham was an example of faith. Paul writes in Romans 4 that when Abraham believed the Lord, he that is the Lord counted it as righteousness, verse 3, to him as righteousness. And when that happened, his example then became a reference point, something that we all point back to the fact that salvation comes to us through faith. Notice verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Salvation comes to us through faith. We are saved by faith. Paul also shows in Romans 4 that King David was saved by faith, verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 6 to verse 8, rather. And that is how even the Gentiles are saved. That's what he talks about from verse 9 to verse 12. And who was an example of all of that? It was Abraham. Can you imagine yourself in his shoes? At this stage in the 21st century, we all, most of us, I would say, have a copy of God's word. Uh, perhaps some of us have multiple copies of God's word. Uh, Abraham, somewhere around 2100 BC. Uh, no written record of God's word. He believed God, and he did what God said. What an example of faith Abraham is. Secondly, we find another example in James chapter 2. James chapter 2. What we learn here is that Abraham's faith works, and so must ours. You know, Paul uses Genesis 15, 6 to show us that Abraham was justified by faith. And James, our Lord's half-brother, uses Genesis 22 to show that Abraham was justified by works. Is that contradictory? No, it, was, it, it, it isn't. We cannot isolate Genesis 15, 6 from James 2, verse 21 to 24. He was justified by faith. And that was the inward change, which is what Paul talks about in Romans 4. But how is that faith displayed? How is the authenticity of that faith confirmed? It is confirmed through works. And that is why James uses an event that happens almost 25 years after Genesis 15 to show that his faith was authentic. It was genuine because it displayed itself in works. Notice for chapter 2. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? That means what he believed inside, in, internally, 
is now put on display externally. You can see that his faith was authentic and genuine by how he lived and how he obeyed God. Notice what James is not saying. He's not saying works save you. He's saying works, good works, show that you are saved. Isn't it Paul who tells us in Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Works then is an evidence of your faith and Abraham displayed it more than abundantly throughout his life. We see, that, we see the culmination of that in Genesis 22. Abraham's faith works and so must ours. Thirdly, Abraham was not only a man of faith, but Abraham was an example of faithfulness. Turn to Hebrews, the book before James, and look to verse uh, chapter 11. In this great chapter on the hall of faith, the writer of Abraham actually, uh, Hebrews uses Abraham's life to demonstrate for us how a faithful person lives. Notice verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. What does faithfulness include? It includes obedience. And notice verse 9. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Now what is this aspect of faithfulness? It's the aspect that we highlighted earlier in Abraham's life. He considered himself as a stranger, a sojourner on earth. You know, while it's good to love the locations that we love, uh, grew up in and were born and all of that, yet God's word tells us we are mere sojourners. We are pilgrims on this earth. And Abraham embraced that life fully. He sojourned. Not only that, notice verse 10. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. His life was marked by hope. He hoped. He longed and looked forward to. Not only that, notice verse 11 and verse 12. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore there was born even of one man and and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. What did Abraham do here? Abraham displayed another quality of faithful believers, and that is he trusted God. If you're a believer for some time, you know and I know that we get multiple opportunities to put our trust on display in, uh, in front of a secular world that we're surrounded with. Not only did he trust, notice verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They longed and looked forward to a day when God would fulfill all of those promises. Now for us as believers in the 21st century, we long and look forward to the day when we will see our Savior face to face. Not only do we see obedience, not only do we see him considering himself as a sojourner, we see him living a life of hope and trust and longing. 
But notice verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He sacrificed. He sacrificed. Did not hold back what God had commanded him to do, including his own son. And then verse 19. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. You can say he reasoned. He lived a reasonable life as a believer. So what, what, in what way was Abraham an example of faithfulness? He obeyed. He considered himself a sojourner. He hoped. He trusted. He longed for that day. He sacrificed and he reasoned. You know, if you are in the Lord, that is to be a mark of your life and mine. You know, in different seasons or perhaps in the same season of your life, you will see and you will observe that these same things are true of you as well. Abraham then was an example of faithfulness. Fourthly and finally, Galatians 3 tells us that Abraham was our spiritual father. That is, we are Abraham's spiritual offspring. The fourth passage that reflects on Abraham teaches us that the ultimate offspring of Abraham is Christ. And if we are saved by faith in Christ, we are then the spiritual offspring of Abraham. You don't have to turn there, but in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, Paul writes, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. You and I are Abraham's spiritual offspring. He's our spiritual father. Not only are you and I Abraham's spiritual offering, offspring, but everyone who is saved through faith in Christ is in the same position. If you're a Gentile here, that is, if you're not from a Jewish background, that is, and if you're a believer, that is your story and mine. In Galatians 3, later on in verse 26, Paul writes, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, having clothed yourselves in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to promise. Abraham then is our spiritual father. It's only fitting that as we conclude, we look at a few quick applications for us as we think of what can we do in this week as we think of Abraham's life. First of all, we can certainly give praise and thank God for Abraham, his life, his faith, his faithfulness. For those of us who are in this century, we are spoiled for choices when it comes to spiritual resources. That helps us appreciate even more what Abraham had to go through. He was a faithful man. We can certainly stop and give thanks for this man of God. Not only that, we can also take time to praise and thank God for faithful men and women throughout history. One quick immediate application for us is I don't know when was the last time you picked up a biography or an autobiography of a believer, of a faithful man or a servant or a faithful woman of God and read about what God did, there, did in their life. 
I can tell you every time I read one, you come away encouraged. You, you think of them, um, of some, some sort of a standing on some pedestal or something until you read about them and you see yourselves in them. You can certainly give praise and thank God for faithful men and women throughout history. There's one last one that we can gather and at least as you think of Abraham's life, do what you can with what you have. Do what you can with what you have. Certainly about Abraham we can say he walked in the amount of light that God had showed him. Again, a generation that is spoiled for choices. We have no excuse not to do what God has called us to do. You know, we can spend our time thinking about others and say, I wish I could, you know, sing like Jonathan or play the piano like Vanessa or something like that, but not consider what God has gifted you and me in and not use those gifts for God's glory. What has God gifted you in? As you think and reflect on that, think and reflect on Abraham's life and the incredible legacy he leaves behind of one who was a faithful worker. But like with all faithful men and women throughout history, he was also a man that was created by God with understanding of God's purposes and plans for his life. But God's work continues. I think it was S. Lewis Johnson who was quoted saying, God buries his workmen, but carries on his work. God's work does not stop. We are in this generation. You know, 50, 60, 70 years from now, none of us will be on this earth. We want to leave a legacy that lasts for a long time. Now, you might say, I'm not Abraham. I'm not in his position. I'm not Jonathan Edwards either. Is God calling me to leave a legacy of hundreds of senators and all of that? Well, that's not what God is calling us to do unless that's specific to you. But what we, you and I are called to be and to do is to be faithful in the, in the responsibilities that God has given us. And as we be faithful in those daily responsibilities, God will use it as he chooses to use it for his glory and for our good. Let me close our time, our time in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this incredible life that we have been studying about, Abraham. And for the example that he is to all of us as we think of and trace our spiritual journey back to him, even as Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians. Not only do we trace our spiritual lineage to him, what an incredible example of faithfulness Abraham is. Lord, would you give us wisdom and strength to be able to be faithful in the daily routine of life? For those of us who are called to different vocations, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful and faithfully doing what you've called us to be and to do for your glory, for the good of your people. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.